0: Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. We are in the midst of a series. Now I argue that this is the most important series we'll ever do. Now in defense of that statement, in defense of that proclamation i once again quote paul the apostle and if christ be not raised your faith is in vain ye are yet in your sins 1 corinthians 15:17 there is no point in being a christian if christ did not leave that tomb you see even when jesus taught when he was going around teaching, most of what he was teaching was Scripture. Very little of what he said had originated with him in his physical incarnation. Sure, when he taught, he shocked and surprised. Sure, his words seem radical to many, but only because Tradition had overtaken original truth. The religious leaders down through the centuries up to the time of Jesus had interjected their own interpretation of what God said and got what God expected. Tradition had become more familiar to the Jews than thus saith the Lord. Now, just as a side note, I'm sure you're expecting what I'm about to say. That very same problem exists in our everyday walk with God. Tradition is far more popular and familiar to the typical churchgoer than scripture. For instance, ask a Catholic to describe what the rosary is, and I'm sure you're going to get a flawless answer but then ask them to describe the tabernacle, and they'll say, what's a tabernacle? That's what Jesus had to deal with, and that's why those that heard him speak thought he was such a radical, but he wasn't. Nearly everything Jesus said, someone else had said before him. And can I say he did not shed his immortality and put on mortality just to become a pastor. As wonderful as pastors and teachers are that would not get anyone out of heaven. Jesus didn't leave heaven only to die a grisly death on the cross just to repeat what someone else had already said. It makes no sense. There had to be more to it than that. The price he and the Father paid was too high just so Jesus could come and quote a little bit of Scripture. Jesus came not to teach, but to save. Why do you think the majority of the events spoken of in the Gospels cover only about the last few weeks of his life? The majority of what's covered in the Gospels only covers about the last few weeks of his time on earth. Wouldn't you think that there were lots and lots and lots of things he said that would merit writing down in the Gospels if that was the purpose? If all he came to do was tell us stuff, then listen, the New Testament would be a lot bigger. Jesus came to save. That's it. Yes, he said wonderful things. Yes, he was a great teacher, but that was his nature. That was God's nature. Jesus came to reveal God. And what we see Jesus doing, teaching flawlessly, preaching perfectly, was the nature of God. But his purpose, the purpose of Jesus on this earth, was to die and rise. And that's why we've taken the time to focus on that death and resurrection. Now, in the previous installment in this series, we laid out some of the facts that relate to the resurrection. Down through the centuries, God's enemies have tried to sow doubt with respect to those facts. They've they've tried to say that none of those things happened the way they were written down, to include by the way that Jesus ever even existed. Now, of course, that part's no longer a common argument. Nobody argues against the existence of Jesus anymore. There's just too much good historical documentation to make such a claim. And yes, I guess a critic may say, well, yes, but all the documentation is contained in the Bible. That's not true. There are plenty of historical records that mention Jesus to include, by the way, the Quran. It's such an established fact that we're not even going to address whether or not Jesus existed. It's an established fact. It's well known. You can find records of Jesus all the way back to his time, historically speaking. No one tries to argue that. That fact doesn't get argued. So let's... Skip right into the arguments against the facts of the resurrection. Now, you may be thinking, hang on, wait a second. What about all those other miracles? Don't people doubt and criticize, for instance, I don't know, the raising of Lazarus or the feeding of the 5,000, all those healings? Why skip over all of those and go straight to the resurrection? Well, we address that in part one of the series, but let's just go over The highlights. No other miracle makes a bit of difference if the miracle of the resurrection didn't happen. You see, it is the resurrection that stands as proof positive that all of those other miracles happen. Because All of those other miracles could only happen if Jesus was the Messiah. Now, all of this is scriptural. All we need to do is prove that Jesus is the Messiah, and there's no way to doubt or to argue or to refute that all of those other things happened. If Jesus is the Messiah, then he had the power to do all of those other miracles and and much, much more, as a matter of fact. Those things that happened, you know, the eyes to the blind, healing the sick, all of that was foretold by the prophets who said the Messiah would do those things. Prove that Jesus was the Messiah and all of the prophecies are proven proven, including those other miracles. Does that make sense? Prove the resurrection, and why does it matter if anything else happened? If he came through that rock, does it really matter? What, anything else? Yeah, he came through a rock, but the feeding of the 5,000, that seems a little far-fetched. No one's going to say that. No one's going to say, okay, I accept that he he rose bodily from the tomb, but did he really turn water into wine? Sounds ridiculous. So, prove, and, and, and you know, when I say prove, and I said this last time as well, when I say prove, there's only so much you can do. And that also goes for just about any fact. You can't necessarily prove anything to anyone that wasn't there with 100% certainty. At some point, you have to put faith into it, and that's exactly what God wants from you with respect to Jesus, with respect to the resurrection. So with that once again out of the way, let's go. Now again, in that previous lesson on this topic, we refuted the general claim that somehow the resurrection account of the Bible is just a common myth that's found in all major religions and should be disregarded because of that. Now, we quickly dispelled that assertion because, among other things, no other religious leader, no other reported religious martyr actually predicted his death and resurrection as precisely as Jesus did. You see, he not only foretold of his arrest, conviction, and execution, but he had to facilitate it. He went where he shouldn't have gone, said the things he shouldn't have said, and frankly didn't say the things he should have. Jesus behaved, listen to me, as if his so-called martyrdom was just part of the plan. Listen, no true martyr seeks martyrdom because martyrdom damages movements, by and large. Jesus was no martyr. That's what makes his saving death and resurrection unique. And that's what makes the argument this is just some common religious myth false. This is what separates the Christian claim of a divine Savior from all others, and it gives it that ring of authenticity. And then there's this one very important differentiator. The witnesses. People witnessed Jesus' resurrection. Listen, the story of the resurrection wasn't just some isolated, random, rambling account of some questionable individual seeking attention. The resurrection wasn't a story made up years after the event. If you check the historical records, they were talking about the resurrection of Jesus within zero time from when it happened. Nobody made this story up years later into some sort of legend. Like every other religion. The story of Jesus didn't develop and change. There has been one source document Unlike every other, I will say it again, religion on earth. Every other religion develops and changes as the world develops and changes, as the culture upon which the story is imposed changes. Korea's Buddha is different than China's Buddha, which is different than Japan's Buddha, just as an example. Sometimes I marvel at the stories that come out of Africa or Eastern Europe or Alaska native lands of people that accept Christ who is nothing like them, who lived in a culture in no way similar to their own. People in the most rural part of India accepting a Christ who is completely ethnically, culturally, and physically different than they are. Accepting him as their Lord and Savior and calling themselves the children of God. It is completely unique in the world of religion. The story doesn't change it doesn't adapt sure the church has changed some of the stories but if you go back to the source document which is the bible that hasn't changed you can find manuscripts and this by the way is like any, uh, unlike any other historical document in the history of mankind we've talked about this in past programs how the most ancient manuscripts of the Bible match nearly perfectly with the one that sits in front of you today. Sure, the language has changed, but go back to the original language, go back to the translation record and how they translated words and why they translated the way they did. They go straight back to those source documents. For example, for example, Caesar's Gallic Wars doesn't have anything near the numbers of manuscript evidence, manuscript record that the New Testament does. Unchanged. The New Testament record is unchanged by and large. Are there differences? Sure. There's still people writing this. Scribing, I mean. You know, translating. They're going to make mistakes. That's why the programs like this exist, so that you can go back and check for yourself. doesn't make sense. Let me go back and check the original document. We do that all the time here. We do that because we want you to be encouraged to do that. Let me get back on track. I was saying that the resurrection wasn't just one story, one person telling a story. And everyone expected to believe it. It wasn't like that. That wasn't how it spread. Listen to me. Three days after Jesus died, three days, rumors started circulating that a number of people had seen him alive. And as time went on, more and more were added to that number. More and more were confirming that they too had seen him. In fact, it's these reports of appearances that started to worry. The religious leaders, I'm sure, they had become so common that all the enemies of Jesus could do was just try and stop people from talking about it. They knew they couldn't counter all of it by saying it was all a lie that was impossible too many people were saying the same thing by the time they said mary was a liar here comes joseph no no i saw the same thing well you're both liars well here comes james he said it he said the same thing bartholomew yeah i saw the same thing okay everybody stop talking about it that's exactly what happened they first tried to say you're all lying but then there are too many people coming along saying no that's not true I saw it too. I saw the Lord. All right, fine. Everybody stop talking about it. If you look at the historical record, the people that got burned to death, murdered, hung, strangled, whatever, martyred, They were not being accused as liars. They were accused as talking too much. Stop talking about it. They're not calling them liars. Stop telling the truth is basically what they were saying. There were too many corroborating, corroborating stories. The religious leaders were backed into a corner. All they could do was threaten people to stop telling the truth. Well, the problem with that was that the sheer number of witnesses made made these threats very difficult to enforce. And because they were difficult to enforce, they were ignored. And people talked. All of those who had these appearance experiences talked. Now, the last time we were together, we spent some time talking about the facts. Remember I said that at the beginning? And among the facts was a list of these eyewitnesses. Let's list them again real quick. Number one, Jesus first. These are just the ones we have, by the way, that are recorded in Scripture. I'm convinced there's many, many more. Many of these didn't even have names, or we didn't know who they were. They were just mentioned as witnesses. But this first one was Mary Magdalene. Jesus first appeared, at least the first recorded appearance, was to Mary Magdalene. And then, shortly thereafter, Jesus appeared to Mary, the wife of Cleophas, Matthew 28, 1. Then, The record tells us that Jesus appeared to Peter in what some believe was a private appearance done to sort of reassure Peter personally after Peter's vehement denials on the night of our Lord's arrest. It seems as if Jesus wanted to ease the mind of Peter. What a wonderful man Jesus was. And that's why I don't like you Peter bashers. People out there who like to bash Peter. Be careful. Jesus loved that man. Next appearance, there's that very famous encounter on the road to Emmaus. I know this is review. Number four, he appears to the disciples as they're huddled behind closed doors, probably in the same upper room that the Passover had been celebrated just a few nights before. This was when Thomas was not present. Then eight days later, Jesus again appears to to the disciples, but this time Thomas is present. As you remember, this is when Jesus submitted to Thomas's test then after appearing to all the disciples including thomas jesus appears to some of the disciples at the sea of galilee this was that incredibly tender story of jesus making them all breakfast and speaking directly to peter after that jesus appeared to 11 of the disciples on an unnamed mountain in galilee all of these are listed in scripture these are the gospel appearances Then there's the last occasion of his appearances referred to in the Gospels, where Jesus appears to 500 people at once. 500. Then, moving on to the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to his own brother James. Yes, Jesus had a brother named James then perhaps the most important appearance of all was when our Lord was seen being taken up. This is commonly referred to as the Ascension, and it's found in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 1, verse 9. This, This occurred in the presence of who knows. They don't tell us how many people. But as he was leaving, Jesus gave them this commission. But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Being a witness was very important. But why? Shouldn't we just believe? Why do we have to ask somebody? That's not what Jesus wanted Jesus didn't want you to just believe he wanted you to hear it from the witnesses and but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the unto the uttermost part of the earth And then finally, there's this very famous story of Jesus appearing post-crucifixion and post-ascension to Saul of Tarsus, who we all remember becomes the famous Paul the Apostle. That list amounts to several hundred people. And by the way, listen to me, when all of this was written down, When all of this was circulating and available, the record of all these witnesses, a lot of these witnesses were still alive. We know that because Scripture tells us. And you know, not one person took back their story. Not one person said, no, no, you're falsely accusing me. I never said that. Not one refutation, not one person named as a witness said, hey, that never happened. Now, I just want to quickly mention something to you. Listen to me. In God's law, there's something called the law of adequate or sufficient witness. And it states, and this is part of God's law, that all that's required to substantiate a witness statement is a corroborating witness. In other words, two witnesses saying the same thing happened is to be considered a fact. Now, we find this law throughout Scripture. For example, Numbers 35.30. Listen to this. Whosoever killeth any person, the murderer shall, shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. In other words, you cannot convict a murderer on the witness account of one person. It will take at least two. There's a plural, witness says. How about this? Deuteronomy 17.6, very similar. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness, he shall not be put to death. First Kings 21.10 And set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. Now that one First Kings 21.10 requires a little bit of explanation, which we don't have time for. It's just showing the importance of multiple witnesses when making a claim, how important that is to the Jewish people. And then there's this one. Perhaps you remember Jesus himself applying the law of adequate witness when he said in Matthew 18, 15, and 16, Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth— Listen. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. It takes two witnesses. If you want to prove something, brother, you better have a couple of witnesses. That's what the law says. That's what God's law says. Now remember, the law is the mind of God. The law is how God sees things. Therefore, legally speaking... All Jesus really needed to do was have two witnesses. To prove he had risen, Jesus could have stopped at two and then just take off. That would have been enough to satisfy his claim legally. To be risen in other words if all that was necessary was just this establishment of the law jesus could have stopped it too those two people then could have been the two that carried the gospel throughout the earth that's all it would have taken that's all that would have been necessary to satisfy legally his claim to be risen he could have gone to three if he wanted to just to add a bit of a buffer but he didn't stop at three. He didn't stop at five. He didn't stop at 10. He didn't stop at 100. Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. And the amazing thing was that those appearances consisted of small groups and large groups, men and women. Mixed together. In some spots. Jesus intended. To leave no doubt. About the truth. Of his risen body. You don't have to stretch your faith. To believe this. Because there are hundreds. Of witnesses. You don't have to base your belief of the risen Christ on some spurious information, on some questionable evidence. Let me tell you something. Any attorney on earth would salivate at the thought of hundreds of witnesses. No need to go to trial. Just tell the judge, I've got more than 500 witnesses in one spot, hundreds more than that. I Judge would be satisfied. Okay, let's move on. Attorneys would be, hallelujah. In any case, God didn't ask you to just believe. No such thing with, as blind faith in God's kingdom. No such thing. God mercifully went above and beyond his own law, which said all he needs is two. He went so far above two, plainly and simply out of mercy. Listen, he, God knows how hard this is to believe. I find that simply amazing, that God is interested in strengthening our faith for this journey. Faith strengthening is part of God's plan. You know, in in most of the other religions that get practiced by mankind, their God or God's are cold and disinterested in the lives of the ordinary worshiper. Not so with our God. He's obligated himself to helping us, and the most important way he does that is by helping our unbelief. That overwhelms me. It overwhelms me. Our Savior is not a myth. He is a witness to and attested to fact. By the way, one more point one more general point about the witnesses listen to me at the time being a witness to christ meant certain death now unlike today when the worst we get for saying hallelujah jesus is risen is some mean troll post on our facebook page For the first few hundred years, it was not only illegal to be a Christian in many parts of the world. It was not only against the law, but the punishment for breaking that law meant being beheaded, mauled by lions, burned at the stake, murdered. Those earliest witnesses to Christ weren't making up a story, nor were they merely paying lip service. They literally laid their lives on the line in support of their personal testimony. Now, I know there's some who will argue, well, really, is that, that's religious fanaticism. Is that, and is that so unusual? Isn't it just possible that Jesus, like so many men of renown, attracted this large following because he was just charismatic he was sly he was just playing on the the ignorance and the superstitions and hopeful expectations of this desperate and oppressed people isn't that possible maybe jesus maybe somehow he found out about this promised messiah or deliverer and decided to seize upon the ancient prophecy just to make himself popular Well, let's look at that possibility for a moment. The accepted concept of the Messiah at that time, among this so-called ignorant population, was actually one of a military conqueror who would come to the Jews and deliver them from their ever-present condition of servitude to a tyrannical regime. Even the apostles gave away that thought when they were talking about how Jesus was going to rain down fire on his enemies and somehow set up a kingdom that they would then be a part of, an an earthly kingdom. That's what they thought. They thought that the Messiah, they had been taught that the Messiah was just going to be some great warrior that was going to save the people from being oppressed. You know, these people had suffered time and again under the, the boot of oppressors. The biblical record alone indicates there were the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Midianites, the Greeks, and on and on it went. Someone even... Once estimated that Israel had eight thousand seven hundred and twenty-eight distinct enemies, all cruel and harsh, all focused on the destruction of God's people. I don't know where they came up with that number, but cut it in half. Make it one tenth. That's a lot of oppressors, and the oppressor de jour at the time of Jesus was, of course, the Romans. The Messiah, the people thought, was to come to their aid and rescue the nation of Israel and then put them on top of the food chain of world kingdoms, place them above the Romans. That's what they thought the Messiah was going to do. If Jesus had intended to simply dupe the, this is what they thought the Messiah was. They thought this is what the Messiah was coming to do. If Jesus had intended to come and fool the people into thinking he was going to lead them on some glorious military campaign, he did not do a very good job. He was a very bad con man. He must not have been doing his homework. You see, Jesus was so bad at it that he even told the people he had no intention of leading any violent overthrow. In fact, he told them, listen to this, he told them to love their enemies. He told them to submit to Caesar, their oppressor. Not very effective talk for an aspiring warrior rebel king, right? No one trying to pass himself off as a conquering hero would say Things like that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. That sort of thing is not really going to instill confidence that you're going to need to lead an army. The fact is, every time someone tried to make Jesus the king, he not only resisted it, but make them feel like fools for even suggesting it. The people that followed him to the end and beyond weren't duped by a lie. They were convinced of the truth. They even had to change their mind as to what a Messiah was. Now, fine, fine, you may be thinking, okay, Well, maybe he was just crazy. Maybe Jesus was delusional and all these people got caught up into it. He thought he was something he was not, and then he paid a price for his colossal miscalculation. Maybe that whole predicting your own death thing was just a lucky guess. Okay, if that's your argument then you still have the pesky problem of the empty tomb. The tomb was empty, wasn't it? I mean, we would have never gotten this far if the tomb wasn't empty. Jesus' body was never found. Not right after his death, nor any time since. It's been 2,000 years, guys. If Jesus did not rise bodily, somebody had to find the body. Again, I say, if it had been found, there'd be no reliable talk of resurrection. I've been trying to convince you for two weeks now that without the resurrection, Christianity would have gone nowhere. There would have been nothing to base the movement on. Without the resurrection, if the Jews hadn't crushed Christianity, the Romans would have. At best... If Jesus had not risen from that tomb, if that tomb was not empty, all Jesus would have had going for him is perhaps standing in line among great Jewish prophets. Maybe even there would be a small, insignificant, completely temporary Jewish splinter group that maybe would have formed, which followed his teachings— but certainly wouldn't have changed the world and certainly wouldn't have lasted. The whole crux of the problem is that empty tomb. If it weren't for that tomb being empty, the Jewish leadership would have had no trouble explaining away the resurrection. And eventually... The world would have gone on as if Jesus had never been born. In fact, the empty tomb is the singular problem for all the doubters. The empty tomb must be addressed by the critics, it must be explained. If you want to ignore Christianity, then you have to explain the empty tomb. If you want to say that the resurrection is impossible, then tell me why that tomb was empty. That's the challenge. Now, to be sure, there have been a few theories as to why the tomb was empty, other than resurrection, of course. In the interest of fully examining this topic, let's just look at these non-resurrection theories, shall we? By the way, much of this material, the one that follows, the material that follows originated with the late Dr. Gene Scott. Number one, Jesus actually survived the crucifixion and then left the tomb either under his own power or with the help of someone else. That's theory number one. Non resurrection theory number one. Number two, the Jewish leaders removed the body. Number three, the Roman leaders removed the body. Number four, all of this was just hallucination. All the appearances, Jesus showing up here, there, and there, all just hallucinations. Number five, the women went to the wrong tomb. That's why they reported that it was empty. They just went to the wrong tomb. Number six, the disciples removed the body. Number seven, the disciples simply didn't know what happened to the body, and then they made up the rest. Now, that list, the items on this list have varying degrees of plausibility so why don't we just kind of look at each one individually and then judge whether or not it's feasible a possible solution so let's go back to the top number one jesus didn't die jesus actually survived the crucifixion the tomb was empty because he left physically still alive or somebody dragged him out physically still alive now if there's one thing we know from history is that the romans knew how to kill and perhaps nothing proves that better than how they dealt with executions now, I'm going to apologize for this up front, but I think it's worth a quick look. A Roman crucifixion is both cruel and effective. The victim's body is literally, now you could say victim or criminal or however you want to characterize it. Since we're thinking of this in the context of Jesus our Lord, you'll hear me use the word victim more often than Accused or criminal or sentenced. The victim's body is literally fastened to either a pole or a cross. Sometimes the fastening is done using ropes, and sometimes, as is the case with Jesus, nails or spikes. The person is then suspended in just the right way that restricts breathing but not so severely that they immediately die. That's why we see Jesus with his arms spread out, and sometimes we see him as his hands are fastened above his head. Both images have been purported to be true. Either way, the lungs are restricted. In other words, it's far more difficult to breathe while your arms are in that position than if they were not. Now, the person can actually take a breath, but only in the most agonizing way. You see, in order just to take a single breath, the victim must physically raise themselves up enough on their restraints. In other words, pull on those ropes or push up against those spikes and nails just enough in order to open their lungs so that they could bring in the air. Each time a breath needs to be taken, the poor soul has to do that. They have to think about it and phys- physically taking a breath. When someone is not under such duress, they just breathe automatically. They don't think about it. Imagine having to think about taking every single breath. And when you do so, you kind of grimace because you know it's going to be incredibly painful. Imagine trying to raise yourself up against those spikes or nails or ropes, how painful that would be. That's what you're going to have to do in order to open those lungs up in order to breathe every single time. Your body is not going to let you get away with no oxygen. It will begin to panic. It will do what it has to do in order to bring in that breath, even if the mind knows it will be incredibly painful. Eventually, doing this enough times, the victim succumbs either to exhaustion or asphyxiation. Either way, death is painful, terrifying, and slow. Now, typically, we are told, the typical crucifixion, we are told, takes about three days for the victim to die. Now, as you and I know, Jesus died in about six hours. Now, most likely, the reason for the quick death was due to his lack of sleep, the toll on his body from that extreme mental stress, as we saw in the Garden of Gethsemane, the savage beating he received from his captors. All of those things together were part of the problem. We also know that Jesus most likely lost a considerable amount of blood even before going to the cross. Remember, he was given that cruel crown of thorns that obviously penetrated his flesh. I don't know if you've ever seen the scalp bleed, but it bleeds profusely. Then we are also told that Jesus was punched repeatedly by the Roman soldiers, and then on top of all of that, he was whipped. And those whips that they used tore the flesh. Jesus lost a tremendous amount of blood. And there, was, there is no doubt that even before those nails went in, Jesus was a bloodied mess. Now, we can be certain of this, not only from the history books and the description of other such beatings and crucifixions, but the prophet Isaiah himself predicted it hundreds of years before Calvary. You've heard this before, Isaiah 52, 14. As many were astonished, or astonied, astonished. It's no way of saying astonished. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Then to top all of this off, we are told that a soldier stabbed Jesus with a spear. All of this happening to one man, in a span of a few hours. Jesus did not survive the cross. So there has to be another explanation for the empty tomb. Jesus did not survive the cross. There is no way He left that tomb either under His own power or somebody taking Him out alive. There's just no way. That crucifixion killed Jesus. Well, what's the next theory? The Jews stole the body. Now, this one seems ridiculous, but let's examine it quickly. Now, to be fair, there would be some logic for them to do so. Do you remember when Osama bin Laden was killed by U.S. forces? Well, they didn't bury his body in a known tomb. They just dumped him off of a U.S. Navy ship out to sea. And they told us they did that in order to prevent the veneration of a grave that held this man. That was done to prevent the fanatics from gathering around his gravesite as a rallying point for a resurgence in the ideology attributed to this man. Perhaps those that thought up the idea that the Jewish leaders took the body of Jesus, felt that the Jews would be similarly motivated. They didn't want a return to the fanaticism of Jesus by having a known tomb out there where people could gather and protest and argue and point to the tomb and wail and and get the people all stirred up again. Maybe that's why the Jews would have stolen the body. Maybe that's the reason why somebody came forward with that theory. Maybe. If there was no physical reminder, such as a body in a tomb somewhere, this little trouble simply would fade away. Maybe that makes this plausible, out of sight, out of mind sort of thinking well even if that were the truth the days weeks and months following the death of jesus did not see a falling away of the enthusiasm for the work of jesus quite the opposite those pesky followers started boldly parading around around jerusalem even during sacred festivals All the while proclaiming that this man Jesus rose from the dead just as he said he would as the anointed one of God. It got really bad around town. Well, all the leaders had to do was produce that body that they stole and said, No, no, everybody hang on, wrong, here he is. All right, we took him from the grave. But we want you to know he's no Messiah. He's simply a dead dreamer. And look, there he is lying there. That's all they would have had to do if they stole the body. But that didn't happen. They didn't produce a body because they didn't have it. It would have been in their best interest to produce a body it would have been able to put down this very serious challenge to their entire way of life, to their entire leadership structure. All they would have had to do is produce the body of Jesus if they had it. Again, no one would have ever heard of this man Jesus, certainly not to, not to the extent that we do now. And who knows what the world today would be like. But they didn't do that they didn't produce a body because they didn't have him so since that doesn't explain the empty tomb there must be another explanation how about number three the roman leaders stole the body now we know that the romans especially pontius pilate were tasked with keeping the peace in this Judea, which was an imperial province. And it was a scene of unrest in the past and in past this time as well. All students of history know that it wasn't, by the way, the brutality of the Romans that kept the empire together for so long. It was the peace, the Pax Romana, that helped Rome's territories to flourish. It was the job of the governors of the provinces to keep the peace, to keep the business flowing. Listen, that's partially why Pilate went along with the Sanhedrin and their insistence on prosecuting Jesus. He saw some measure of danger surrounding letting this man live. In fact, it was after the crucifixion that the Jewish leaders convinced Pilate to allow them to have a guard over the tomb. They said an uprising was still possible even after his death, and that, quote, the last error shall be worse than the first, Matthew 27 64. So, in light of all the possible uprising, Pilate or some other Roman authority decided, well, maybe we should err on the side of caution and take the body ourselves in an effort to prevent anyone getting the idea that he actually rose from the tomb and then being emboldened because of that. Maybe that's what happened. The Romans said, yeah, you know, let's let's go ahead and take the body. Let's just make sure this thing goes away. Go ahead. You guys take the body and then hide it somewhere. Maybe this whole thing will die down. And you know, when you think about it, this scenario is actually far more believable given the fact that the Romans didn't really understand the impact an empty tomb would have on the believers and even those on the fence about Jesus. Listen, the Jewish leadership, they knew the possibilities if the people believe Jesus rose. If the people saw an empty tomb, the Jewish leaders knew how dangerous that would be because Jesus predicted his own resurrection he had predicted his arrest he predicted his prosecution he predicted his crucifixion all he had to do now was you know prove that he predicted his resurrection and they would be done and they knew that but the romans didn't the romans didn't really understand so you kind of think maybe that's possible maybe the romans because of their ignorance and because they were only interested in making this thing go away, stole the body. So, of the two, the Romans would be far more likely culprit than the Jews to take the body. This actually has some potential to be plausible. But we know that didn't happen either. You know why? Because when Jesus' followers were going around claiming that Jesus survived a Roman, Roman crucifixion, that made them look bad. I mean, one of the things that kept the people peaceful was the fear of the wrath of the crucifixion of the Romans. If this guy survived as evidenced by an empty tomb. It would make them look bad. Again, the Romans weren't thinking he was going to actually raise from the dead. They were concerned about the peace. Well, that whole peace would have gone away if these apostles kept going around saying even mighty Rome couldn't hold them down. And you know know, the way they could have stopped all of that? Produce a body. If they were afraid that Roman justice was being compromised by these people walking around claiming that Jesus survived the crucifixion, all they had to do, if they stole the body, was go and get that body, display it in the middle of town, and all of that would have then died down. Even, they would have said, even your mighty king is now subject to the Roman authorities. That's all they would have had to do. If they had the body, if they had stolen the body, they would have most certainly produced it to restore order in the province of Judea. Listen, the Romans, they wouldn't have feared a little challenge to their moral character over a little thievery of a body. They, don't, they wouldn't worry that people judge them. How dare you steal the body? They don't care about that. In fact, they could have just simply argued that what they did, they did for the good of Rome and then be done with it. So then why didn't they produce the body? Because they didn't have it. All right? That theory doesn't hold water. What's next? All the post-crucifixion appearances were simply mass hysteria all the post crucifixion appearances all the records of jesus appearing here and there just people hysterical psychologically they did they were just seeing things now i don't think that even modern psychology would be that foolish to claim that one It would be ridiculous to assume that 500 or more people would all be hallucinating about the same thing, some of them at the same time. Next. Number five. Those first witnesses, the women who went to anoint Jesus' body for burial, simply got lost in the dark, and they just went to the wrong tomb. Sounds like a typical male chauvinistic view don't you think silly women always making mistakes that caused the world to change accidentally fine let's assume they did go to the wrong place all that would then have to be done to fix that mistake was go to the right tomb produce the body show everyone he was still there and none of this would have ever taken place produced the body, and none of that hysteria would have ever happened. Don't you think that the religious leaders would have checked the story? I mean, these were just silly women, right? You can't take their word. You have to verify. Of course they would have checked. Empty tomb they didn't go to the wrong tomb they went to the right tomb and it was empty now we're to the theories that the rest of the world actually believe happen these are the things that people who do not believe in the resurrection actually think happen these last two represent the only possibilities that the world will accept. Number six, the disciples stole the body and lied. Number seven, the disciples simply don't know what happened to the body and made the rest of it up. The only possibility, the only real plausible explanation that the world will accept is that the disciples were just a bunch of duped, liars were they that's what we'll discuss next week you've been listening to time in the chapel a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about god in your life and you in his plan time in the chapel is a service of chapel ministries Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries Click Follow to get all of the latest information.